Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And Dublina, we've really been on a roll the past few weeks discussing daring women in history. Well, it is March after all. It is March. It might be April by the time this comes out. But, you know, we've been keeping up the tradition of covering Women's History Month with Belle Starr, Bessie Coleman, the Brontes, who are daring in their own way, Frida Kahlo. But we haven't really ventured into one of our favorite topics of discussion yet, which is, of course, exploration. We love to talk about explorers, whether male or female. We do, and that's why today we're going to cover polar explorer Louise Arner Boyd, who took adventurous trips to the north, made real scientific and geographical contributions in the form of thousands of photos and films, and performed undercover wartime work for the U.S. government, no less. Boyd commissioned and organized a whopping seven Arctic expeditions, was the first person to charter a plane over the North Pole, and earned herself numerous international honors and medals. But what's maybe most surprising about Boyd is the very same reason that she was able to become an explorer in the first place. She was a San Francisco socialite, an incredibly wealthy heiress, and that station in life really allowed her a lot more freedom in the 1920s and 30s than most women had. She had the ability to go out and explore the Arctic because she had the money to do so. But when she wasn't busy scaling glaciers, she was patronizing the symphony back at home home, patronizing the ballet, hosting these grand parties at her estate, tending to her famous camellia collection, doing the sort of things that are maybe considered more traditional for a socialite of her era. It's unlikely, however, that Boyd would have had so much freedom and so much money if her youth had been less marked by tragedy. So we're going to start off by telling you a little bit about that. She was born September 16th, 1887. Her father had made a fortune in the Bodie Gold Mine Bonanza of 1877 and later on in investing. Her mother was also a Bodie heiress, and the couple raised their family in her San Rafael mansion, Maple Lawn, and also a ranch east of the San Francisco Bay. Now, Louise grew up horseback riding with her two brothers. They would pack supplies and spend entire days on the trail. So kind of a tomboy. But in 1901, her 17-year-old brother, Seth, died suddenly of heart disease. Only eight months after that, her 16-year-old brother, John, died too, also of heart disease, leaving Louise and her parents, who were kind of in poor health themselves, almost inseparable. And the three of them would travel across the U.S. They'd visit Europe from time to time. And Louise was brought into her father's business, too, picking up skills that perhaps made her later such the confident expedition leader she became. She also got into photography on one of those European trips, which was a hobby her parents really supported. They hired a professional tutor for her, got her the equipment she needed, really embraced this new interest of their daughters. Soon she kind of lost that parental support, though. In 1919, Boyd's mother died. One year later, her father died, too, leaving her her millions of dollars and making her president of the Boyd Investment Company. She was only 32 at the time. According to Elizabeth Olds and Women of the Four Winds, Boyd's huge inheritance allowed her to choose anything, quote, from a morbid retreat to an unbridled plunge into the reckless self-indulgence and profligacy of the 1920s. 
Instead, though, she chose something very different. She chose travel. Yeah, and at first her trips were semi-conventional for a well-off woman. She took a friend, Sadie Pratt, who was the widow of General Conger Pratt, and together they visited war-torn France and Belgium. She took a lot of pictures documenting the ruins. And then the next year they did a second European trip, this time to Scandinavia, Italy, Portugal, and Spain kind of the things you might expect. But in 1924, Boyd branched out a little bit and booked a cruise to Iceland, Greenland, and Lapland, definitely spots that are kind of outside of the Grand Tour territory, I'd say. The cruise, though, really turned out to be a life-changing experience. Boyd was just enchanted by the Arctic and quickly started planning a return trip, although this time she really wanted to go on her own terms, you know, be in charge of what she got to see. After a year off during which she was presented Presented at the British court, Boyd hired Arctic expert Francis de Guibert to advise her planning. She then chartered a ship, which was appropriately named Hobby, and which also, according to Jocelyn Moss for the Murren County Historical Society magazine, had been Roald Amundsen's supply ship when he flew over the North Pole in a dirigible. So it had a little bit of a pedigree to it. It did. And she hired a crew of 14, but ever the lady, she also brought along her maid and a few friends including a Spanish count and countess. So they were going to have a good time. So they set out in summer 1926 to Franz Joseph Land. And uh, even though the captain had described her as, quote, some American woman who wants to see ice, <laughs> kind of dismissive. Not very there. flattering. <laughs> the trip was essentially an opportunity to hunt polar bears. And newspapers were really smitten by the entire concept that uh, this woman would charter the trip in the first place, taking a count and countess along with her and go to hunt polar bears, of all things. So the New York Times ran headlines like American Girl Shot 11 Bears in the Arctic. And one of the most famous photos of Boyd actually has her wrapped up in a dead bear hanging from a hook. If you're an animal lover, it's kind of of a horrifying picture. It doesn't sound very comfortable either. I mean, even if you know the animal's dead, I mean, it just sounds kind of alarming to be wrapped up in a dead bear. Yeah, not a skin either, the whole dead bear. But it's actually interesting to note that after such big game hunting trips kind of became unpopular, uh, you know, a few decades later in the century, Boyd claimed that the numbers had been really exaggerated by the press. You know, she was credited with shooting about, I think, 11 bears personally. um, But she kind of revised that and said they really only shot a few bears. The bears they did hunt were just for food, trying to make everybody calm down a little bit. Also reported were the quantities of film shot of 21,000 feet plus seven still photos. Boyd would document far-off landscapes, studies of cliffs, glaciers, inlets, animals, plants, and of course, the ice. Though she wasn't into scientific work, Boyd's early photography skills were still good enough to make these photos really useful. Some provided new information about different types of Arctic ice, for example. Yeah, she had the scientific eye, even though she didn't have the scientific intentions yet. And sure enough, she caught that polar bug that's so common in many of these exploration episodes that we do. She wrote, quote, I understand for the first time what an old seaman meant when he told me that once you had been in the Arctic and in the ice, you could never forget it and always wanted to go back. 
Fortunately, she had the resources to do that. So in 1928, Boyd rebooked the hobby and made plans to take a second big game hunting trip, combined with a little botanical research this time. But just as she got to Norway, which was going to be her Arctic departure point, she learned that Roald Amundsen had gone missing while searching for the dirigible pilot Umberto Nobile and his crew, who had crashed themselves somewhere in the Arctic. So Boyd immediately turned over her ship to the Norwegian and French search effort, saying, quote, how could I go on a pleasure trip when those 22 lives were at stake? But she also kind of contributed extra to the effort. She hired pilots to aid the hunt for the missing men, and she joined in herself. She wasn't going to loan her ship and its crew, which she had all paid for and everything, and just sit back in Norway and watch the whole thing happen. She was on the hobby as it conducted a 10-week, 10,000-mile search for the missing men, taking thousands of photos along the way and 20,000 feet of film, too. Perhaps because the situation was so serious, this also seemed to have been Boyd's first taste of the madness-inducing side of the Arctic. She wrote about how the landscape could play tricks with your head, how they'd constantly spot tents that actually turned out to just be ice formations. And though Amundsen was never located, Noble and his men were ultimately found alive by another crew. According to Women in World History Encyclopedia, Boyd was honored for her efforts by being awarded the Order of St. Olaf First Class and becoming a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. And when she learned that she'd be receiving that St. Olaf Award, and she was going to only be the third woman to have earned this, she dashed off to Paris first to buy an appropriately grand outfit for the audience before the king, having nothing else but her sealskin and boots with her to wear. So I think it's worth noting here that Boyd always really carefully emphasized her femininity. And perhaps it was because at the time, the very fact that she wore pants, you know, sealskin pants, that sort of thing, on her expeditions was newsworthy. But she often had to justify doing things that were considered masculine, like exploring. And she'd basically respond to um, these questions by saying she saw no problem between being a feminine woman and doing adventurous things. She reportedly said that, quote, at sea, I didn't bother with my hands except to keep them from being frozen, but I powdered my nose before going on deck no matter how rough the sea was. There's no reason why a woman can't rough it and still remain feminine. So I'm curious to know how much of this was her personality and how much was just trying to represent herself correctly in the news almost. Either way, that 1928 trip was important for one other major reason, though. During the search, she met countless polar scientists and experts who were also looking for Noble and Amundsen. Nearly all of them stressed the importance of a good photographer on research missions. So this kind Hmm. of got her to thinking a little bit. Yeah. So for Boyd's next trip, which was conducted during the summer of 1931, she decided to get into real geographic research and survey the fjords on Greenland's east coast before between the 70th and 74th parallels, I should say. And this trip really seemed like a bridge, a real bridge between earlier and later missions in a way. Yeah, she chartered a different ship this time. She outfitted it again with a hand-picked crew, but she still brought along her maid, uh, her secretary, some friends. So it had a pleasurable aspect to it, um, aside from the scientific one. Uh, but, it, you know, she branched out, too. She turned a stop at a recently settled Inuit settlement into an anthropological and social opportunity. She was 
just a real social woman. She made friends with the local people who lived in turf and wood houses. She hosted a party for them on board the ship. We're going to talk a little bit more about her her parties later on. But she she went out of her way to be the social person she seemed to be, even in the Arctic. She also took thousands of photos because that's what she was so good at. And because she used high-tech equipment and had become really adept at something called photogrammetry, which is uh, taking photos which can in turn be studied and you can draw like really precise measurements and maps from them. Um, because she became so good at this type of photography, Dr. Walter A. Wood, who was a surveyor for the American Geographical Society, was later able to use only 200 of these photos and put together a whole new map illustrating this area. And it turned out the party had discovered a new glacier and a new valley. She also had another lucky meeting. On the trip home from Norway, she met AGS director Isaiah Bowman. Both parties realized a partnership would be beneficial. With the American Geographical Society as a sponsor, on one hand, Boyd would have access to top scientists in different fields and some credibility. On the other hand, with Boyd's money and organizational experience, she had, after all, planned three of these trips by now, so she she did have a lot under her belt. The American Geographical Society would be able to launch missions that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. So it was a win-win. Definitely. So the first AGS-sponsored Boyd expedition launched June 28, 1933, and Boyd was again the leader of the expedition and its chief photographer, but this time there was also a geologist and a physiographer and two surveyors. I think there was going to be a botanist, but he came down with appendicitis right before. So uh, I guess Louise, again, had to fulfill that job. But there was also really high-tech equipment this time, too, that Boyd had picked out herself, like ultrasonic depth measuring equipment for um, mapping out the seafloor and figuring out all its contours and everything. And the plan this time was to study glaciers in the Franz Joseph and King Oscar Fjords and chart the northeast coast of Greenland, which we've talked about the eastern coast of Greenland a little bit before in our Nansen episode, and we know that that is the very remote side, the side that has all of the inlets and the rugged terrain and is really hard to land on and to survive on. But they traversed it anyway, according to Jacqueline McLean and Women in Adventure. The party spent most of August exploring on foot, carrying all of their gear on their backs and working almost constantly to take advantage of the light. So it doesn't sound very socialite no. right there. But they even had a close call on the way home when the ship ran aground. With no one else around to help and the Arctic winter approaching, the captain had to have a cable thrown around an iceberg to give the ship enough leverage to get out of that situation. Kind of tow it out of the muck almost. Exactly. And by the time they left, a 55 mile per hour snowstorm had come. So they kind of left just in just time. Just in the nick of time. And really, Boyd noted that too. She wrote that quote, nature was closing her doors on us, which I I really like that quote. She she leaves behind some interesting quotes, but I like that one because it is so hostess-like. The Arctic is saying goodbye, time to go home. Here is the <laughs> snowstorm and the 55-mile-per-hour wind. So and they took the hint. They did. They got out of there just in time. The result of the 1931 and 33 missions was a book called The Fjord Region of East Greenland, and it included maps and 350 of Boyd's photos and charts of the sea floor. She also had a fjord named after her, 
Louise Boyd Land. Appropriately enough. So over the next few years, Boyd made two more trips with the American Geographical Society, taking photos, collecting data, and spending much of her time at home analyzing it all. She always said that that was a really major part of the job. It wasn't just the trips. That was the easy part almost. It was looking at all the work they had they had brought home. But she'd also returned to her life as a social grand dame, too. She served on the boards of the San Francisco Symphony. She worked with the Garden Club and the California Botanical Society. She managed a staff of nine at her estate, Maple Lawn. By all accounts, though, she was considered to be a fantastic hostess, and she would stage these elaborate parties at Maple Lawn, which was decorated with items from her travels and antique Swedish murals. But the grounds there were especially famous, featuring many Japanese maples, but other also other exotic plants. Boyd herself gardened in a special wool suit with matching hat, occasionally having full-grown trees moved about the property to complement new construction projects and tending to her hothouse camellia collection, which I can't even imagine how you do that move yeah, entire she, fully grown trees. She would apparently build some new feature of the garden or an outbuilding or something and not want to have that tacky, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just built kind of look. And so she'd move full grown trees to make it look like it had been there for a while. What I really can't imagine is gardening in a wool suit, but maybe that's because we live in Georgia. And if you, <laughs> if you tried doing that, you'd probably die within about 30 minutes. Yeah, there aren't many <laughs> occasions around here to wear a wool suit. She almost always, along with her suits or whatever she was wearing, wore a camellia, too, or at least some kind of flower, even when in the Arctic. According to Women World History, she said, quote, I don't feel dressed unless I'm wearing flowers. Even in Greenland, I'd find something and wear it with a safety pin. She was also a little bit of a foodie, too, which I think is interesting because... I don't, when I think of Arctic explorers, I think of some of the worst food imaginable. Yeah. And raw fish. <laughs> well, in, in cans that have botulism and all sorts <laughs> of bad things. And I'm sure she wasn't eating that well on her trips, but back at home, she was quite a foodie and she had a very extensive, very international cookbook collection from all of her travels. She'd try to bring home recipes, although her favorite cuisine was apparently Southern cuisine. Boyd's last AGS-sponsored expedition was in 1938, and the next year, World War II began, which made the Arctic pretty much a no-go region of the world as far as exploration was concerned. Yeah, especially hobbyist explorers. So Greenland was a particular point of concern, though, for the United States, and there are a few reasons for that. One, Greenland was a colony of Denmark, which Germany, of course, occupied during the war. Geographically, it was right below where American pilots would be flying to Great Britain. I mean, if you've ever flown there, you usually do fly over Greenland. You can kind of see it on a clear flight. And also for meteorological reasons, it's a really great place to gather information that's really useful for forecasting the weather in Western Europe. It would be a powerful place to control. Unfortunately for the U.S. government, though, most of the experts on Greenland, you know, people who could kind of give them a leg up on that part of the world, were behind lines. Louise Boyd, however, was safe at home. So in the summer of 1940, the State Department contacted her about helping out. And so the first thing she did was cancel the publication of 
her book on Greenland, her latest book on Greenland, which would contain all of these brand new maps and photos and all sorts of information that she and the government didn't want falling into enemy hands. And then in 1941, she went a step further and began organizing a trip to Western Greenland and Eastern Arctic Canada for the National Bureau of Standards. So the strip wasn't top secret, but it wasn't exactly public either. According to the National Archives, a confidential document explained that the goal of the trip was to, quote, elucidate the anomalies of radio communication on the U.S.-Europe transmission path, which was, quote, worthwhile from the national defense viewpoint. Only the captain, Bob Bartlett, knew the true nature of this mission. The crew, which Boyd had again hired herself, just thought that she was some lady on a photography trip, and for some strange reason, she was the boss of the captain. Well, in that, uh, her history doing these missions in the first place did give them a little bit of cover. It was entirely plausible that Louise Boyd would go on another Arctic trip, even in the middle of a war, to Crazy check out Louise. things she was interested yeah. in, you know? And so they had that cover for actual government work that was being done. But Boyd also had her own super top secret mission from the War Department, and that was to investigate possible landing sites for U.S. planes. And she, uh, in the areas she was looking at, she documented the food and water conditions, you know, if people had to be there for a while, calculated wind speeds, calculated longitude and latitude. And, of course, she took her her classic um, complete photo sets to let people know what the area really looked like. And the wartime trip ultimately ended up being Boyd's last expedition to the Arctic, even though she did at the age of 67 in 1955, charter a plane to fly over the North Pole, which she had, of course, as any polar explorer probably wants to see the North Pole for her whole life. And uh, when she made that flight, she was carrying the flag of the Society of Women Geographers and wrote about it pretty poignantly. She said, As I saw the ocean change to massive fields of solid white, my heart leaped up. Then, in a moment of happiness, which I shall never forget, our instruments told me we were there. For directly below us, 9,000 feet down, lay the North Pole. We crossed the pole, then circled it, flying around the world in a matter of minutes. And as we already mentioned, she was the first person to charter such a flight. And I think she um, also made comments realizing how how much flight was going to change the world of polar exploration and make it so much easier to get to some of these places. Um, she didn't stop traveling, though, just because she didn't make further Arctic expeditions. She traveled throughout Asia, throughout the Middle East, well into her 70s, while still maintaining this vigorous schedule of charity work, society work, all of that type of thing, until late in life her money ran out, and friends ended up supporting her in a nursing home until her death in 1972. I think she asked for her ashes to be scattered over Louise Boyd land that proved uh, logistically difficult. So instead, they were scattered over Arctic Alaska, which was the last place she had really been in the Arctic. We want to be sure to give a special thanks to the Marin History Museum for directing us towards some accounts and really fantastic photos of Boyd to use to research this podcast. The museum is actually in the Boyd Gatehouse, a guest house of Maple Lawn, which was donated to the city along with a park by Mr. and Mrs. Boyd after their son's deaths. Also, one final note for any of you research enthusiasts out there. In 1974, the Center for Polar Archives at the National Archives got 150 reels of 
of Louise Boyd's film from the Elks Lodge in San Rafael. And by 1980, you know, these were all on those nitrate reels, which can ignite very easily. Um, they had all been copied to safer stock. And according to Audrey Amadon, who wrote about the films for the National Archives, it's really interesting to watch the progression because it shows Boyd's transformation from a hobbyist to an actual geographer as she starts to focus less on this almost contrived story of adventure, you know, pasting together the the best, most exciting high points of the trip to recording things in a true-to-life scientific sort of way, taking a little of the drama out of it, but focusing more on things that could help people better understand the Arctic. I think that's really neat. You can actually see a few of her clips, too. I watched a few minutes on YouTube, so you can see the ship and the Greenland coast and how it all looked. Really interesting, again, with so many, like so many of these subjects, to see someone who turned a passion into, I, I don't want to say a career, because it's not like she really made a living at it, I guess. But she spent her money. <laughs> yeah, she spent her money, actually. But um, but a lifetime's work. Absolutely. So I think on that note, we'd like to leave with a, with a quote from Boyd that kind of expresses her love for the Arctic. And she said, it goes, quote, cold, yes, of course. But there's an unearthly grandeur about it all, and I love it. So that's pretty perfect. You're right, Dublina. A good time to transition to listener mail. So this email is from Megan, and she wrote in to say that she loves the podcast, but yesterday was the online qualifying test to get a tryout for Jeopardy. I was killing time waiting for the test by catching up on Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast. I listened to the one about the Lone Ranger and then finished the one about Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning just a minute or two before the test started. Part of the way through the Jeopardy test, there was a question asking, quote, what poet wrote sonnets from the Portuguese for her boyfriend, Robert, or something like that. Uh, and she goes on to write, whoa, Elizabeth Barrett on the Jeopardy test. I never would have known the answer to that question if I hadn't just listened to your podcast. If I get on Jeopardy, I'll have you guys and your awesome podcast to thank for it. So so cool. Yeah, very cool. And I hope how, she makes it. How lucky, too. I know. I mean, Megan, maybe if. Maybe if you get on Jeopardy, you can say hi to us. <laughs> but, <laughs> we love a shout out. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, Megan. And um, we do really like hearing about, you know, times when the podcast has saved you from a, a close scrape or something, whether that's your AP test or something like a Jeopardy test. So it's always fun to hear from you guys. We are at History Podcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History. And we are on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the stuff we mentioned on this podcast, we have an awesome article called How Polar Bears Work on our website. You can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.